1 Timothy chapter 4, and this evening, Lord willing, will be in verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Lord, we pray that as we look at this text from your sacred scripture, that first of all, you would be glorified in our study of it, our meditation on it, and that as we hear from your word and are mindful of what it says, may we direct our thoughts towards you and your glory for your great namesake. Lord, then we pray that these words would affect us and mold and shape us, that we would be more like you and love you more when we walk out of here than we were when we came in, Lord. And we pray that this text would give us both guidance and understanding in how the church is to function and how we as members of your church are to live our lives as well. And so we ask that you would fill us with your spirit to this end, Lord, in your name, amen. This is one of those passages where at least in my experience, and perhaps that's not for everybody, but in, in going through and being a youth leader at one point or another in my life as, um, in the ministry, this is a text that gets brought up regularly and in fact has been the subject of entire youth camps or retreats or events and that kind of thing because mostly of verse 12, right? Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's a great pithy little sentence. Breaks down, you have six points there nicely laid out for you. Easy to make a weekend of that, right? Easy to make a camp out of this particular text right here. Now, I don't want to say that that's entirely wrong to do. I think that's good and has its benefit and is certainly important for young people to understand that they can be an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity, right? But of course, that's not what the text is about. Paul, in instructing Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus, 
has just, at least in this last chapter, given us some very heavy instructions, right? Instructions about watching out for false teachers who want to come within the church. Instructions about how to live a holy and a godly life in front of and in the face of that world that wants to draw us away from it. In carnal Christianity that wants us to draw away from it. In fact, false religious people within the church that would profess the name of Christ but want to draw our faith away from it. How to live in light of that. So here, as we come to the end of verse, pardon me, of chapter 4, Paul focuses his attention from doctrine, from teaching, from lifestyle, from holiness, and then points his finger directly at Timothy. And he says to Timothy, you as a minister of God's word, here's how you are to conduct yourself. So this is directly focused on Timothy himself. So first and primary, when we come to our explanation, understanding of the scripture, we need to come away with this is Paul's command for Timothy. And then by extension of that, anybody who would be a minister in his church. He was a young guy, but not so young. He's not like in his teens or probably even in his earlier mid-twenties here at this point. More like he's probably in his early thirties as he's preaching here in the city of Ephesus. Now, in that culture, there's differing views of when somebody becomes an elder or somebody becomes an older man, depending upon where you lived in the world. In some parts of the ancient world, it was 30. Some parts, it was 35. Some 40. But somewhere in that range of 30 to 40 is generally speaking when someone was considered an elder or an not technically an elder, like a pastor in the scripture, but an elder, meaning an older person. You know, longevity was not the same then as it is today, right? The mortality rate was much different. I'm not sure if it was higher or lower. I'm not sure which one's which, but it was different. People didn't live as long. So in our day and age, we would see probably someone more, at least this is, I'm going to benefit myself here in saying this, in their 50s or 60s <laughs> as being in that category. Maybe even getting into 60s and 70s, honestly, as medicine is improving and whatnot. And so when Timothy comes into the church, remember, Paul is not just an elder statesman in the church, which he totally is. But he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so when he would come in a church, a lot of weight and authority came along with him. He was older. He was wiser. He was the one who established the church through the work of God. And so in some areas, in some arenas, he could just show up and say things like calling the Ephesian elders to himself. They're in Miletus and they all showed up. You know, walking however, or traveling however far that was to see him. But Timothy, some people have called him timid Timothy. And there's a reason for that. Later on in the second epistle to Timothy, God, through Paul, has to remind him that he has not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, so that he may teach these truths. But he needed this reminder from Paul that he is not to let people viewing him as a youngster, 
a whippersnapper, somebody who did not have the life experience mileage that some older people have be something that deterred him from saying hard truths, from living a certain way, from encouraging others to live in the way that God was leading them to. So he's saying, don't let that be an influencing factor, the fact that some people are just calling you young. Command and teach these things. Authority is implied here. Now, authority is a difficult thing to have within the church. One of the reasons is because we see it abused often, right? I mean, we could easily right now after the service just fire up YouTube there and have all kinds of horrible, bad preaching that is done with an authority that is leading many, many, many people in a wrong and errored direction, right? We're all aware of that. One of the reasons why I hate talking about money is because how much teaching about money is done with authority and done wrongly, abusively, in error, falsely. But God has instituted authority structures in the church, and we can't shy away from that. It is what it is. God has commanded in his church there to be as leadership within the church, elder, pastor, teacher, bishop, overseer, whatever word you want to use there, and deacons. And those two offices are the only two offices instituted by God that are going to continue on throughout all of history in the life of the church. The elder, pastor, teacher, overseer, whatever phrase you want to use specifically, is to be the one who is to rule and to teach. To rule and to teach. So here he's telling Timothy, even though he's young, and even though a lot of people are going to look down on him because of his youth, that he is to get up and with all of the authority that he can as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ to lead the church through command and teaching. There are certain things that definitely are said and are done and are acted out by us as the leadership that are with a sense of authority. We've determined to do things a certain way here. Right? We have ordered our church in a certain way. We have a statement of faith that we have put in place. We have a constitution that we have put in place. We've ordered how we conduct our business meetings. We've ordered how we're to function within the body life with one with another in terms of dealing with either sin or dealing with other issues that are just happening within the body. There's an order and structure that we have put in place here to do that. And it's right and it's good. That's a good thing. It's a blessing that there isn't just anarchy in the church. And it's a blessing that it isn't just one guy making all the decisions. Right? But there's a healthy body of leadership that we all pray about the things that we're going to decide and we command and we put in place and that we teach. I talk with the guys and I, well, all of you, in fact, sometimes, and you're all free to come up and talk with me about the things that we teach. And we want 
What comes from this pulpit, whether it's me or Brian or Joel or Fred or Nick or whoever, is up here and preaching God's word to be God's word. And whatever we apply in the life of the church, whether it's something that we're ordering corporately or whether individually with one another to be as biblical as we can. And sometimes we have to wisely infer from Scripture how to do certain things, right? There's no chapter and verse, here's how to structure your church constitution. (laughs) But we want to wisely and prayerfully see how do we do this. What's the best way to order our church? So that the leadership can listen to the congregation, and the congregation has a voice to the leadership, and no one is necessarily lording that position over the other. That's what Timothy's to do. That's a tall order. That's a tough job. Especially if he doesn't have people coming alongside him, helping him in that. Now, I'm sure he did. I'm sure there were people there in the Ephesian church who loved Paul, knew he had sent Timothy to them, and was coming right alongside him to help him out. But he needed still to hear this word. Leadership sometimes means that you are doing things and making decisions that you're uncomfortable with. And sometimes they're hard to do. And so he has this encouragement, you are to command. I imagine a timid guy like Timothy would very easily want to defer to everybody else. But that's not what he's called to do here. And he's to let no one despise him for his youth. I don't necessarily know how you do that practically, (laughs) except to simply say, hey, just because I'm young doesn't mean that the Lord hasn't called me to do this. But people might despise you for whatever reasons, here, his youth. But what he does in saying, here's how you counter people who are or might have the potential to look down on your youth. He says, in these five ways... Be an example to those who are around you and who you are leading. Now, Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 about being the good shepherd, right? He is the good shepherd. He knows his own. He knows his sheep. They hear his voice and they follow him. Okay? Jesus is a leader of his sheep. By extension, those who are under shepherds, under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet called to shepherd the flock of God, we are to also lead the sheep in the way as best we can, the way we think Jesus would have us to lead and guide them. And here he tells us how we're to do it. What kind of life should I live, should we live as leaders so that people see us and say, that's a person who loves and knows Jesus. That's a person who wants to be more like Jesus. That person is a person who I can see, I want my family following after. I, as a sheep, want to be fed good food, and this is the kind of person that I want to be feeding me and my family. Amen? That's what verse 12 is saying here. So first of all, an example in speech. I don't think this necessarily means that he just doesn't say cuss words. (laughs) I think what's being spoken of here is that the things that I speak or that we speak or the things that we say would be a refrain 
from things like gossip and slander and abusive language, right? In Ephesians, he tells the whole congregation, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good and acceptable and imparts grace to those who hear, right? And so if he's telling the congregation that, then certainly that ought to be the example or it should be the manner in which the leadership functions as well. So I pray. In fact, that's one of the very first. And I think if I remember right, that's the very first verse I ever memorized as a Christian. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good and acceptable imparts grace to those who hear. In fact, I think that's New King James. I don't think that's ESV. Um, the reason is, is because I had a filthy mouth. And it was something, frankly, that I was kind of oddly proud of as a non-Christian. <laughs> but you know, I mean, well, maybe you don't. But as non-Christians, you get proud about weird things, usually sinful things, right? And I was proud of that. And so one of the things that I said was I took the Lord's name in vain regularly, on purpose, because it was the worst cuss word I could think of saying. And so I, on purpose, used the name Jesus Christ so that it was just the worst thing I could say. So one of the first things the Lord impressed upon me was my language needed to change. And so I memorized that verse and I still routinely cussed, but routinely what would come to my mind is that verse after I did it. And so once I had that word in my mind, meaning the the scripture text, that word from God, in my mind, it helped me to curb that. It wasn't immediately taken away from me, but it was something that over time that has become less and less and less and less and less and less a factor. I noticed that when I'm around other people, for example, when I worked at the produce facility down in Durham and I didn't work with any believers and they spoke filthily, (laughs) they spoke very profanely, that my mind would quickly revert back to that. And so I'm grateful that I had a passage like that already memorized to help keep me in check so that when I did sin, I was quick to repent. And when I was about to sin, I oftentimes had this already in my mind. So how am I example in my speech? Well, this is how. I take the word of God in. I want it to become a part of who I am as a person so that as I live my life and I am an example of trying not to speak in a way that is inappropriate to the Lord, that wouldn't be gracious, that wouldn't be acceptable. Instead, I try to live in a manner that does bring grace to you and that does cause you to accept the words that I say but at the same time when I do stumble one of my examples is I need to be quick to repent same thing in conduct in my actions are my actions one that will be an example towards those who who I am around so that could mean all kinds of different things Right? In my conduct, it could be the way I drive, right? The way I drive is it's something that if you were to just be on the road, do you see me run through a red light kind of thing? You know? Now, granted, that might have been a one time thing, but still, my conduct needs to be such that I'm aware of that kind of thing regularly so that I'm an example to other believers. As a man, where are my eyes looking? 
Where are my eyes looking? Where is my mind going? Do you see what I mean? Is my conduct with my thoughts in that way pure and acceptable and righteous? Do I make an effort to not have those wandering eyes like Job prays for? I mean, he doesn't pray for wandering eyes, forgive me. He prays against that. He prays for the ability to not have that particular affliction. In my conduct, am I somebody who, in my dealings with other people, is quick to get angry, quick to fly off the handle? Am I somebody who's going to get upset really quick with other people? Am I hot-tempered? I shouldn't be. I should think of those passages like, be quick to hear, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath, there in James chapter 1. In love. As Jesus loves really weird people. Have you noticed that? This morning at Church on the Esplanade, I preached on Luke chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, there's a woman there who is pretty unlovable in the world's eyes. Everybody there at the table around Jesus is repulsed by her. And yet Jesus communicates not only love to her, but demonstrates that she has loved him as well. So as a pastor, there's going to be people who come in the church that are more difficult to love than others. I I like the phrase sandpaper people, right? Rubbing off our rough edges. There are those people in every single one of our lives. But as a pastor, the example needs to be that I'm willing to go out of my way to love certain people that perhaps other people would find quite difficult. In fact, maybe I find it difficult, but the Lord has called me to love those people in such a manner. In faith, faith doesn't just mean that I am blindly just stepping out and going, well, the Lord's got it. Let go and let God kind of thing. The faith he's referring to here is our doctrine, our theology, the things that we believe. I'm to be an example in belief in what the word of God says. Because you can be assured of this, as much as some people don't want to believe this, what comes out of this pulpit will influence you and affect you. You might not believe every single thing that I do and say. It's fine. I understand that. But you are going to be influenced by it. And so am I as a pastor? Am I as a preacher? Am I as a teacher? One that I'm clear a command that I'm given to do? Am I leading as an example in the faith? Meaning, do I believe what the the hard words of the scripture have to say? Am I willing to believe it even though I'm like, oh, I don't get that. But that's what it says. Or am I willing to believe it even though I don't understand it myself? What in the world does baptism for the dead mean in 1 Corinthians? I don't know. It says it. There is a reason they did it. I'm not going to do it now. But it's there and I believe that for whatever reason it was there, it was rightly there for that time and place. So do I believe what the word of God says? Is my faith in the scriptures an example to the flock? Leading you to believe what the scripture says as well. It is the infallible authoritative word of God. Scripture is completely sufficient for everything in your life. 
absolutely everything scripture is sufficient for. Now, it might mean you need to infer certain things out of there. Like I already talked about earlier, there's no chapter and verse for church constitutions. There's not always going to be a chapter and verse for every single issue we come up with and we face in our lives. But there's definitely going to be principles that we need to take from the scripture and apply to our lives. And in purity... And in purity. Am I pure in my life? And this has to do both with well, sexual things, with financial things, with, I mean, all kinds of areas where my life can be impure. Where I'm duplicitous. Where I'm one way here in front of all y'all, and I'm a different way at home. Or I'm one way at home, and one way here, but I'm different at work. I'm not pure, I'm, I'm insincere, I'm a liar, I'm duplicitous. I have a secret life over here, and in all these other areas I'm portraying and presenting myself one way. Am I pure? If you were to get my wife alone and ask her some tough questions about me, what's she going to say? Is she going to give answers that lead you to believe, oh yeah, he's like that in these other areas as well? If you talk to my coworkers, what are they going to say? I don't have really many other friends outside the church, but if you were to talk to them, what would they say about me and about my conduct and my purity? So, is that all you following me with all this? That's all that's pretty all encompassing, isn't it? There's not very much wiggle room there. Basically what he's saying here is As a pastor, as a teacher, as a leader in the church, is this your standard in all of your life? Right? Is this your standard in all of your life? Is it your standard in your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, and your purity? Is the very fabric of your existence caught up in the word of God? Now, I would be, and you guys get this, I would be absolutely foolish to say yes and amen. I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, all the time, everywhere, in every way. Follow me. That's your cue to not follow me. (laughs) That's your cue that I'm trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I try to do that. I strive for that, right? That is definitely a prayer that I have. So what I need to do, definitely, if you were to go back in time to the beginning of Sovereign Joy, 11 and a half years ago. Boy, I can't believe it's been that long. If you were to go back then and look at my life then and compare it with how I am now, I hope that I'm a better example in speech and in conduct and love and faith and purity now than I was back then. Does that mean I was disqualified back then? No. But it means that God is growing me and I'm becoming a better and better example. I'm becoming more and more like him. And the more and more that I'm following Christ, hopefully the better and better example I am to the whole congregation. Here, let's follow Christ in these areas in this way together. That's what we strive for. That's what we desire. That's what I do anyways. I hope so. This is a passage that I pray regularly for, for myself. Lord, help me. And, as I, and this is perhaps an example for you. Pray through this passage in each one of these phrases. Slowly think about those areas of your life where you fall short in these areas. And simply ask the Lord to strengthen you in those ways. 
to give you his perspective on those issues in that per, maybe per, you have a particular problem with your speech and maybe it's a particular problem in conduct or you're struggling with loving certain people or there's doubts you have about scripture or there's an impure motive and way that you're living in a certain aspect of your life. That doesn't disqualify you from being a Christian or mean that you're a lousy inferior sheep. We're all lousy and inferior. That's the whole point of the gospel. <laughs> But we want to strive for holiness. That's it. He could have just as easily said, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example of holiness. But instead, and gratefully, he broke it down for us here. Now, until I come, Paul's intending to get back to Ephesus. We don't necessarily have a record that that happened at this particular point. We don't know that it did. We don't know that it didn't. But he says, until I come... Devote yourself. Now, this is important. Okay? Because church, this is why we do things the way we do. Devote yourself to three things. Public reading of scripture. Exhortation teaching. Public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. I heard a recent... Pastor, well, a pastor recently say that the day of preaching and teaching is over. That time has passed, and now what you need are other methods. His mind, he was speaking experientially and entertainment-wise. These are the visual and the mediums by which we learn and grow now. So we shouldn't be preaching and teaching. We don't need to hear regular readings of scripture for long protracted periods of time. What we need are the world's methods for today, for the church. Now, I wasn't necessarily saying the world's methods, but you understand what I'm getting at here. But that is not God's way for growing the church. God's way for growing the church is, first of all, the public reading of scripture. There's a reason why we read an entire chapter of the Psalms for call to worship. We used to read an entire chapter on top of the call to worship just from another portion of Scripture before the sermon. Then I would read the sermon text, and then I would preach the sermon. But the whole point, whether we do that or not, is that the reading of Scripture is what's going to be the fabric of our worship. So no matter what's happening, it is Bible-saturated. Now, he says here, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, I don't think he is necessarily saying Timothy is the only one who can do all of the reading of Scripture in the congregation, right? He's saying make sure that that takes place in the context of worship service. That me, as the pastor, Timothy, as the pastor, whoever's the leadership within the church, the elders, Brian, that we're to devote ourselves to make sure that the public of reading of Scripture is taking place. For them, that meant the Old Testament, largely. Probably some Gospels. But for the most part, the Bible was being read because the Bible is what's going to form you as a Christian. To exhortation. Exhortation has both a positive and a negative connotation. You know that, right? So it's one thing to exhort Joel and say, Joel, you're really good at this particular aspect. And to exhort him and encourage him and positively build him up in that area. Right? That's an, that is a manifestation of exhortation. 
Another one might be Joel looking at me and saying, Pat, you really blew it in this area. You, you suck at this thing. You are not good at this thing. You need to repent. That's an exhortation as well. And both of those are wise and good and accurate and helpful for the building up of the body of Christ. Sometimes we need an encouraging and positive word, and sometimes we need the hard medicine that we don't like to take. But exhortation is to be something that I am devoted to. So as I'm preaching, as I'm teaching, as I'm interacting, I need to not be afraid to say the hard word to people. Timothy had to be confident that he was able to say what people needed to hear in that specific time. And it could be something that could have caused a whole lot of problems. Sometimes that happens. And it could be something that there's just this tender believer that is struggling so much and they need to hear a good, exhortive, positive word from the pastor, from the elders, from the deacons, from just somebody else in the congregation. And teaching. Teaching is something that cannot be neglected in the worship of God. Whether it's teaching in a Sunday school class or teaching from the pulpit or everything in between, teaching has to happen. Now, in different times and in different ways, this meant different things. So you can imagine in certain contexts, there was absolutely no biblical literacy at all, right? Like a missionary going to a foreign context and having to completely from scratch teach everything the Bible has to say. There is a lot of foundation that needs to be built there. That's not so in our case, right? In our case, we have a solid foundation, and so we can, from there, build on those things, which is why we do desire and we strive to go a little bit deeper and dig a little bit deeper and think a little bit harder and wrestle with some truths that there are some other people, other Christians who aren't wrestling with, and that's, that's fine. It doesn't make them bad and us good. Right? It doesn't make us superior to them. It's just where the Lord in his sovereignty has people where they're at. And we acknowledge that. But we need to be a congregation of people that is regularly hearing the teaching of God's word. Teaching that challenges. Teaching that's consistent. Teaching that's repetitive. Teaching that is glorifying to God. Now, verse 14. Don't neglect the gift which you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, my personal proclivity to this passage is that there was a different thing the Lord was doing in that very, very, very early church than he does today. Meaning that when some people had their hands laid, had hands laid upon them, there was a unique and a distinct gift given to them. And I think that was only for the very early church. And now, once you are born again, baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of God, you are given the gifts of God that he has for you to use throughout the rest of your life. I get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 13, chapter 14, that whole passage on the gifts of the Spirit there. I get that from 1 Peter chapter 4, when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit there. I get that from Romans chapter 13, where he talks about the gift of the Spirit there. Pardon me, chapter 12, where he talks about the gifts of the Spirit there. So here, whatever 
he had happened that a council of elders, whoever they are, we don't know who these people are necessarily at this time. I'd like to think it was the Ephesian elders, but he had hands laid upon him and they prophesied over him and a special unique gift was given to him that he was called to not neglect. Now all that aside, what does that mean for us today? It means I have been gifted by God to preach and to teach his word. I didn't ask for it, but oddly enough, I knew it, right? When I was pretty early on as a Christian, I knew that this is something the Lord was calling me to do. And I kind of probably think that most of you have been, not all of you have been gifted by God who have been born again, but I think most of you probably know where those giftings are. Do them. Don't neglect them. If you've been given a gift by God and he's given it to benefit the whole body and the congregation at large, then why in the world aren't you using it? It would be very bizarre and unbeneficial for you if I just sat there on my hands the whole time and never preached, right? I mean, God's called me to do it. He's gifted me. I've studied to do this. It helps you. It benefits you for me to get up and use this gift. And every single one of you has a gifting from the Lord. I absolutely believe it. You need to use it. We need it. I need it. The church functions as we use our gifts as a whole, right? 1 Corinthians 12, is the whole body a great big mouth? No. Is the body a great big eyeball? No. We're made up of many various parts. And all of the parts function together. And if they don't, so my shoulder got hurt a while back. And I get, you know, when I sleep just a little bit funny on it, my entire body knows it that my shoulder is not working the way that it's supposed to. Even if I'm not doing shoulderly stuff, right? My whole body still knows that the injury is there. The whole body, in order to be healthy, needs to function in the gifting and in the ways that God has called it to. And so as you have been gifted by God, then use them within the context of the body. We're not all mouths. We shouldn't be all up here preaching and teaching. We're not all hands. We're not all ones who are going out there and working and doing certain things. But we all have been gifted by God in certain areas. We shouldn't neglect that gift that he's given to us. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Practice them. I didn't start out a... I, I was not a great preacher. You know what I did when I started out? I would go to Bible study on Monday night down at the Calvary Chapel that I used to go to in Southern California, and I'd take notes on what the guy up there was saying. I wouldn't advocate that now, (laughs) but it's what I did. It's all I knew at the time. And I would go and I would teach the youth group that I was a part of exactly what dude taught on Monday night in my own pat kind of way. And I'd kind of read a passage and go, dude, that's cool. Jesus is cool. And then I'd move on to something else and go, dang, that's cool. That's about the level of teaching. I don't know how the Lord used it, praise God. But practice these things. What is your gifting? Practice them. 
Immerse yourself. Dive into the Word of God. Dive into whatever gifting you have. Dive into this way of living in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Just be that. Make it become the warp and woof of your life. So that when people look at you, they might not be able to say, that's a Jesus follower right away, but they see something distinct and different about you. And within the context of the church that we say, I am so benefited by this person's gifting and this person's work. Timothy had to grow in these areas. He hadn't arrived. Paul had to grow in these areas. He hadn't arrived. And if Paul and Timothy had to grow in these areas, we need to as well. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Directed specifically at Timothy, he's called to keep a close watch on himself, on his own life. Everything that's spoken of there in verse 12. Keep a close watch on that and on the teaching. Why? Because it's very easy to get squirrely and get off. It's really easy to say things that aren't just right accurate. I remember one time, many, 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 many years ago, I taught something. I might have even used this illustration before. I said, God has faith in you in this particular area. Now, I didn't mean that the way it came out, right? You guys hear that and you're like, that's weird. (laughs) That's like, I don't just believe in Santa, but Santa believes in me too, right? That's like, that's a weird thing to say. And some people took from that me saying that God had to grow in his faith and understanding of you. And went to other people and said that I taught that and it became a thing, right? Now, you guys kind of know me. I don't always say the right words in the right way at the right times. I mess my words up routinely. And I look back and that was one of those times where I just didn't phrase things the best. But see, I have to keep a close watch on that. So even when I'm up here, you notice like I'll try. If I catch myself, I'll stop and correct it. Even though that's honestly a little embarrassing. You know, I'll be, I'll be honest. That's some, but here, I want to keep a close watch on my teaching. Because this is what matters, not what you think of me. God's word is what matters, not am I an articulate speaker. God's word is what matters. God's word is what matters for my life, and God's word is what matters for your life. That's why he ends like this. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I want you to be saved. And not just be saved, but to be being saved. Right? Paul says in Philippians 2 or 3, I think it's 2 something. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That I'm supposed to be, as I'm living my life, trying actively becoming more like Christ. And the more I do what we just looked at here tonight for you, I don't only just save myself, but hopefully I'm able to impart to you those things that you are able to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as well. That as you hear God's word, it works that saving work of Christ in you. And I don't mean that you're not justified, right? 
You are right with Christ in terms of your salvation the moment you were born again. But we're talking about here becoming and living in light of that salvation. I'm living more like a saved person. My salvation is the Lord preparing me for his kingdom. I'm becoming more like him as I'm growing, growing, growing in his knowledge and in his grace. That's why we do what we do. Because I love you so much. (laughs) And I love Jesus so much. And I want you to know him. And I want you to love him. And I want you to grow in him. And so I pray and I try to strive for this. And my heart is that you would as well follow Jesus more and more. Hear from his word. Grow in your knowledge and in your grace of him so that you'd be prepared to meet him one day. Because you're going there. I want you to be ready for it. I want to be ready for it. Can't wait to see Jesus. Lord, we love you. We love you. We love you. And I pray you would take my heart and my life and that you would form it. Because I haven't arrived yet but that you would help me as a pastor to live in light of this text. And for all of us who hear this, Lord, that we would grow as in our understanding of this text, but also grow in our lives influenced by this text and all of the other texts of your scripture. Lord, ultimately, it's all about you. And we want to know you and love you more and more and more, Jesus, because we have this amazing salvation and grace that you've given to us. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for your radical salvation. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.